Hi, I'm Bex Dillon and welcome to this podcast, Conversations on Faith and Equality. In this podcast, I got to, for the first time, have together my dad, Nikki Gumbel, and his sister, Lizanne Gumbel QC. Not the first time they've ever been together, but the first time they've ever been interviewed and talked about things together in a recorded way. And got to ask them a bit about their childhood and life and what made them both really driven they both are some of the most driven people I know and take more exercise than anyone I've ever met my aunt has just completed 10 marathons recently and she is my dad's older sister um but I also really wanted to interview Lizanne because she's absolutely brilliant at what she does she's top of her field as one of the leading QCs doing personal injury and clinical negligence and she's done cases like the Ian Patterson case where he was the breast surgeon who was unnecessarily doing mastectomies and she also has been leading the litigation against Jimmy Savile and Harvey Weinstein so she's done a lot of the big sexual abuse cases as well so she really has done a lot on child abuse and sexual abuse and really severe personal injury cases. And so this interview is an opportunity to hear about her and the struggle that she had to get to her position and as a woman, how she has come against so many barriers, but despite that is leading the way in what she does. And um, a little sort of family chat as well, which could have gone on and on. So I had to cut some of it out, but um My own family members will get the full version, but for you guys, I've just got the highlights. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm very excited. I think I was thinking this is probably the most intimidated I've been about an interview because you're the two most driven, successful, determined, um, kind of top of your field people that I've interviewed. And not only what makes it more intimidating is that you're also part of my family. And, you know, one is like you, dad, as who lots of people who've listened to the podcast will know, kind of had a huge impact on the church globally and on the Christian faith. The other, my aunt, your sister, Lizanne, this is one of the most successful barristers, really, a leading QC. Looks like you've always got some Silk of the Year award for every area of um, the law that you work in. And for me personally, I've been one of the most inspiring women to sort of see progress in a career and have a huge impact in the work that you've been doing. And over the last few years, I've had um, what's been amazing is that Lizanne's daughter, my cousin Ruth lives in Brighton around the corner from me and so we get to hang out spend a lot of time together and through talking to her I've realized that also how similar the two of you are which I don't know if you kind of realize that about each other I mean we know that you're this have this like determination and commitment to your work more than anyone else that I know and also sort of fanatical about exercise love to multitask never met people who like to multitask more and the thing that um found particularly surprising was that you both only clean the floor on all fours with a cloth rather than a mop (laughs) um you both started your careers as barristers but had quite different starts and I don't know how you would sort of say dad it sounds like from from what you've told me and I'd love to know Lizanne's perspective on it but that things were kind of 
easy for you in the way that sort of set up there were connections, whereas it's sort of the total opposite for Lizanne entering the bar. How? Yeah, yeah I think I, I, I think um, I my life was made so easy, and Lizanne's was made so hard, and it was, it was sheer determination that she achieved that she has achieved what she's achieved. But you must feel that, don't you? I mean, you, you were not given any of the advantages I was given. I was told by my by dad that um, he wouldn't pay for me to do the bar exams course, but he would pay for me to do a cooking course in Switzerland instead. And that's why I did them at the same time I was at school on a correspondence course that costs nothing. So I did the first lot of bar exams while I was at school doing A-levels. Then I did the next... A-levels. I thought you were doing your degree. And the bar finals in my second year at Oxford. But then I had to do practical exercises within a year of passing it or some pupillage. So I went to Paris for four months. And it was just as we had just joined the EU and could do pupillage anywhere in Europe. So I did pupillage in Paris which meant I could do that while I was at university and then started before I was 21 in London doing pupillage when I'd finished at Oxford. And I did pupillage, did four pupillages, having been interviewed in probably 30 or 40 sets of chambers, most of which had never had a woman pupil in chambers at all. One of them said, well, the last woman we had in chambers married one of her clients who was convicted of murder, so we can't take that risk again. (laughs) Another one said, didn't your father tell you that women are for breeding, not for being barristers? And another one said, the only woman pupil we've ever had here was Margaret Thatcher, and we didn't take her on, so we're not likely to take you on, as indeed they didn't. So I then spent four years... And they put me in a broom cupboard without removing the brooms. But it did have a small window and a window ledge. And I brought in a stool and sat at the window ledge and did my papers. And at the end of the year, I learned more than any of their junior barristers. So they told me I should leave. And then I was going to another set of chambers where they'd said I could come on a sort of trial basis. And I was due to start there in October in the middle of a huge case. And they rung me up two days before and said, the head of Chambers has died. He's the one who said you could come. We don't want you to come any longer. So it was sort of quite unusual. But at the time, and, you know, it seems a long time ago to me, but it's, you know, it's it's the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s. And there were very few women barristers, Mm. certainly very few senior ones. And by the time I got silk in 1999, I was the 100th woman silk that had been in all time. And there were 80 men that year. Wow. One of the things that Chambers always said was, well, we'd have to build special lavatories for you and we're not prepared to do that. My generation of barristers is the first generation that have competed on equal terms for getting silk and um but yeah. even so even now it's about 25 percent rather than 50 percent and yet the recruitment at the bottom of chambers mm. is at least 50 percent women 
Yeah, I was looking today of saying that, that sometimes it's it's over 50% of the women yeah. entering the bar, but by the time you get to your level of QCs, it's actually more like 16% yes. are women. So what happens between entering the bar and getting to, to the top? I think men would say that women go off and have children, but actually most of them take, you know, very short amount of time off and do come back. And that isn't really the explanation. Uh, I mean, I think it is getting easier, but it is, I mean, lockdown has been a good example of how tough it is for women because in lockdown, it's been the women who've had to do the homeschooling. Mm. So it is still quite tough if you're trying to bring up children and build really what is a small business um, and work full time. Mm. And it's really difficult to work part-time is one of the problems with the bar because cases are just ongoing and need attention when the solicitor wants to talk to you or wants you to do something. And I'm at the moment trying to devise a scheme for women coming back from maternity leave and case sharing so that two women coming back who want to work part-time to share cases so that one or other of them is always available any day of the week, but not necessary. But one of them doesn't have to be available Monday to Friday, as mm. you really do on any big case. Mm. So that's sort of one of the things we're looking at. We, we are trying to find ways to make it easier for women to have children come back to work, mm. but not have to work the ridiculous hours that we all work. I mean, you know, it's just not unusual. I'm not unusual in being in chambers at half past seven every morning and often still being there at 11 o'clock at night. Mm. And that's not very compatible with bringing up children. Mm. Yeah. And I guess if, if things do go like that part time, then both the parents can do that and share the child's care and share the work more. But when when neither have flexibility, then it's 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 ten, it has to be all or nothing and makes it very difficult and ten, and sort of the way that society has been, which, as you're saying, lockdown, even with women who have really great careers and are working just as much as their partners, somehow lockdown sort of has pushed back this sort of like 1950s model in the home. Women are trying to work, trying to look after their children, trying to homeschool, trying to do everything. And it's sort of, hopefully, maybe there will be some change from lockdown and it will rebalance some of those things. Is it just that the sort of family, the, the need to balance the family, or are there other sort of maybe like unconscious biases of, of people believing that women are going to take maternity leave or they're going to go off or they're not going to kind of continue in their career? Are there other sort of, yeah, in... Discriminations. I think, that, I think it probably is unconscious bias, but there's certain areas that there are far more women than other areas. So there are far more women in, in family work. And the Bar Council has been doing some research recently as to the earnings of women in different uh, compared to men in different areas of work. And the only area where they are on a level playing field is family work. In fact, I think they're slightly ahead in family work. But in commercial work, they are way behind. Mm. 
personal injury cases and very rarely against a woman. Whereas in Clinic, I quite often am because the NHS are much more flexible or seem to be. I mean, that's a perception. Mm. And there's probably, it's completely unscientific and completely anecdotal. But my perception is that in different areas, there is a, there's more of an unconscious bias mm. than is in other areas of work. Which so makes wanting to hire people, sorry. No, no, go on, go on, Bex, you go. I was going to say, it sounds like making people wanting to hire people who sort of look like them, if it's sort of, if it's all being run by sort of white men, then they want other white men to represent them. And that sort of, even if they're not think, realising that they're thinking that, that often seems to be, you, you know, you hire people who look like you are similar to you. And, and I guess that can play out in the sort of lawyers that you choose to work with as well. I think in lots of people are making a huge effort to not do that. And, you know, in our pupillage selection and all that kind of thing, mm. really try without positive discrimination just to look very carefully at how diverse we can be. But that um, makes it even more remarkable that you've got to right to the top of the personal uh, uh, negligence um, field. Um, and um, I'm sure you're far more sought, sought after than the vast majority of men. And if you wanted to be a high court judge, you could be a high court judge any any moment you wanted. Not necessarily, but I definitely wouldn't want to. So I've not tested it, but I'm not, you know, not necessarily because I've always done claimant work. So I've got a very heavy bias in terms of claimant work, whereas people who become judges should have done a mixture of work as much as possible. I mean, I actually even got to come and do some work experience with you years ago. And I was amazed, you know, that people say how brilliant you are in court and doing a case, but I saw you also with your client and how brilliant you were with them and how kind of approachable and how much obviously your client, but also you're often seems like the sort of people that you're um, representing are often people that are going through such difficulties and hardship, whether it's because of some kind of operation that's gone wrong, particularly with childbirth and having severely disabled children or having done lots of cases on child abuse or sexual abuse. You know, there's the sort of issues of huge injustices and those are the people that you seem to be always representing and I wonder what sort of has drawn you to that area in one sense you do the work that comes to you but I do find it satisfying to work for people who will you know it's something all my clients because I really do any claimant work something awful has happened to which if they've got a good case is not their fault and they need compensation and whether I get paid for doing it or not I get a huge amount of satisfaction for trying to make life a bit better because you can never make life worse because all you can do is not get the money mm. but they will have the illness or the disability or the, the trauma has already happened and no one can undo it and sometimes getting money either, particularly in sort of sexual abuse cases, is some recognition that somebody did them wrong and it wasn't their fault and someone's got to pay for it. 
mm. can be helpful. It never gets you anywhere near back to where you should should have been in life. And nobody is ever better off with an injury, even if, as some cases now, get awards of 30 million. But anybody with a 30 million award would be much better off uninjured. And so it never gets you back to where you should be, but it helps a bit to make life easier and you know more equal than if you have if you're poor as well as injured. It's mm. just catastrophic. Mm. And the same and the sexual abuse, um, the same same would apply. But and, and in both those areas, you've really pioneered change, particularly in the area of sexual abuse and the. You've written, a, you've written a book on personal negligence and also on, on sexual abuse as well, haven't you? I've written yeah, a book on clinical negligence and child abuse co uh, compensation claims, which are really the, most of the child abuse claims that I've been involved in have been sort of group actions of paedophiles working in care in approved schools and all sorts of schools nowadays. And you in care the law changed, haven't you? You 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 pioneered the change in the law, which enabled these institutions to be sued many decades after the events that occurred. Well, there was a case that gave a six-year limitation period, fixed six-year limitation period. A case called Stubbings and Webb gave a six-year fixed limitation period, which was all based on a misreading of the Tucker report that. Um, and it took years and years to get cases to go to the House of Lords to establish that personal injury claims should be three years and a flexible Section 33 extension where necessary. And as Lord Justice Sedley said in a case I took to the Court of Appeal, that one of the pernicious fruits of abuse is the silence that follows. And the reason that people don't talk about abuse for years and years until they're well outside the limitation period is the effect that the abuse has on them. So it's obviously unfair if there's a six-year fixed limitation period. But mine was only one of a number of cases. One of the other cases was what was known as the Lotto Rapist, which was a woman who tried to sue a man serving... 16 years for rape when he won a lottery ticket when he was in prison. And there would have been no point in suing him before that. But having won the lottery ticket, there became a point in suing him. And my cases were cases of children who'd just not been believed when they'd reported abuse. And uh, in one case, I cross-examined the headmaster of the school uh, about the teacher who had been charged with sexually abusing a child and he'd gone to court and the headmaster had been a character witness for him and he'd been acquitted and I asked the headmaster in cross-examination do you still believe he he was innocent and he said no of course I don't after he was acquitted we walked around the gardens and he admitted to me he'd done it and that was the first time he'd ever wow. said that actually he knew and yet he kept quiet all those years. So you can see how really unfair it was mm. on my client, who no one had believed to not be able to bring their claim outside the limitation period. But you've got that change, and now you're acting for a lot of these groups. Yes. Uh, to get 
them some kind of justice. And having, I mean, you've been doing cases of kind of child abuse and sexual abuse for a long time, but then having, you know, done Jimmy Savile and Harvey Weinstein, who, who as a result of that, there's sort of the Me Too campaign and it brought it all to the attention of kind of everyone. And I wondered what, you know, having been doing this for such a long time, were you surprised by the kind of Me Too campaign or did you think this has been going on for ages? Why has no one been talking about it? Or, you know, there's that, but there's also criticism of the Me Too campaign that makes it difficult for men in the workplace. I wonder what you having been in this field and seen case after case and also knowing the kind of depth and the detail and the magnitude of it, when you saw it kind of come into the public, how you, what you thought about it? Well, uh, no, I think it's it's way beyond time that you know should there should have been years earlier more publicity about the sort of I mean it, it's difficult to find any woman that you know well who wouldn't admit to some sort of sexual harassment in the workplace mm-hmm. or you know, in relationships or anything else. Mm. I mean, not everybody will talk about it, but it's, you know, I would say that the vast majority of women have been sexually harassed in a, you know, in a, some in a much smaller way than others, but from everything from unacceptable touching over clothes to rape by people that they, they know or work with or... Um, have been, you know, in contact with who are friends of friends or anything else. And it's just been unspoken about for generations. And, it's mm. you know, it's absolutely right. People can say it's gone too far and, you know, men now are having to be really careful in the workplace and, you know, they can't even say that's a nice dress you're wearing. Someone will say... They're sexually har- and it, you know, it's become exaggerated, but that's only because attention's only just coming to it. And mm. I can see there's a case for saying it's gone too far, but it was very necessary to bring to the forefront of behaviour in the workplace. Mm. And it's I mean it's also part of you know women not making progress at work because they are frightened to report have been, I think, you know, much less so now, but in the last 20, 30 years, women that were very scared to report abuse in the workplace because they feared that they'd lose that job and they wouldn't get another job because they'd be seen as a troublemaker. Mm. And yet, in a way, they were very brave and protecting a lot of other women. Mm. So I think it has been really important. I mean, it's, you know, I think overall it's a very good thing. Mm. But still, probably is quite difficult to to say that there still is probably a lot of fear that of what will happen to people's jobs yeah. if they do do that. And I think you're right. I think of all the people that I know really well, and so many of them I know like awful stories of what's happened in work or outside of work. And it's sort of I think as the years go by, I get more and. I like, can't believe people so close to me could have been through these things. And so when people sort of say, oh, well, you know, men have to be careful what they say, I think, well, 
women, it, it hasn't just been like a little comment, you know, there's that awful things have been happening to women. So if men have to be a little bit more careful of what they say in the workplace, that's not really such a huge thing as women having kind of traumas happening to them and having to continue because of fear of losing their job or not knowing how to talk about it or where, who they can trust. And, you know, for a lot of those cases that you've done, it, it seems like often the thing has been power. And I wonder if you think that, you know, even in, in terms of the kind of children in these homes, it's people in positions of power with Harvey Weinstein, Jimmy Savile, whether it's sort of um, because of being famous or because of being the head of institution or because of having kind of respect, whether you think that's what enables sort of the abuse to happen. It's men having power and influence. Oh, yes. As absolutely a part of it, and often that's all it is in a sense, and that even applied um, to the Ian Patterson, the breast surgeon who was carrying out vasectomies on women who didn't need vasectomies, and people thought it was for money, but it wasn't really for money. It was playing God, and no one will, no one will stop me, and it's completely a, a power trip. And you, just to stop you, I mean, you acted, didn't you, for, the, for his victims as well? Yes. There were thousands uh, of them, weren't there? It was, you know, no one really knows why he did it. It was part, could be partly money, partly sexual, but mainly power and play. It's just playing God. And I can, I can do it. I've got power over these women. And if I want them to have surgery, I'll tell them to have surgery and they'll obey me. And, it, you know, it is an extraordinary mindset and it's rare. And uh, But it's every now and then there is, there is somebody who manoeuvres themselves into a position where they've got power over thousands of women, but most of the time it's men manoeuvring themselves into a position where they've got power over... A few women, but I mean, you—you you can't. It isn't unique to women that they are sexually harassed or or abused. Obviously, there are men who are sexually abused and sexually harassed by men in a position of of power. And a lot of the approved school group actions that I did were all were all male approved schools, and they were all young boys with teachers who abuse their position of power in, in schools and the public school cases and a lot of uh, the sort of um, institution cases are men abusing men. I mean, how, doing all those cases and knowing the kind of details of it, how do you sort of manage that? How do you cope with hearing those sort of level of trauma? Well, we all know it happens. So, you know, being able to try and help people comes to and getting, I mean, the most important thing to get as soon as possible in those cases is to try and get interim payments to get treatment because treatment, you know, the first thing is someone recognising that it's wrong and that their, their right to have reported it and their right to feel aggrieved and their right to feel traumatised. And then the next thing is to get treatment. And treatment can be 
not for everybody, but for a lot of people, treatment is really important and can be really helpful having professional help to come to terms with the fact that it's not your fault and you've got to work through it. So getting interim payments to get treatment for people is the sort of one of the few positive things you can do in that situation. But I find it just as traumatic to see families at home with cerebral palsy children where you know they go into hospital expecting to give birth to a healthy child, really looking forward to the birth of their first child or second or third child. And then because a midwife doesn't call a doctor or a doctor does the wrong thing, they take home a baby that screams night and day and needs, mm-hmm. you know, feeding through a gastrostomy and two carers to lift them and hoisting and their house has to be turned into a hospital. And how parents cope with that, to mm. me, you know, equally difficult. Obviously, there's the the fact that that was negligent, not intentional, makes it different sort of intellectually, but it doesn't, to me, make it different emotionally. Emotionally, seeing parents having to cope with that sort of disaster in their lives and having a child who's life expectancy maybe as long as theirs and they've got to look after and they've no idea whether they'll get damages to help them when they start and the state funding for children in that kind of condition is really really limited so families are literally working 24 hours a day looking after children with horrendous disabilities and who will you know, never progress beyond the age of a six-month-old, for example, and will need feeding and looking after and will you know, scream in pain is very traumatic as well. So mm. people often focus on the child abuse work as being really traumatic, but actually all personal injury work is quite traumatic because people's lives have gone from you know, absolutely normal lives where they're minding their own business, keeping us, you know, happy family together and something horrendous happens. And that's, you know, you can't lose sight of how important it is to try and find some way of helping in that situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, you both have came from a family where your own father had experienced quite a lot of trauma having escaped mm. Germany from the Holocaust and so you kind of have grown up although it wasn't really talked about and you weren't mm. allowed to talk about it he had actually experienced quite a lot of trauma and I wonder if you sort of saw the impact of that in how you were then raised and how he treated you kind of now knowing what he'd gone through whether you can sort of see actually that was trauma that and that affected us, you know, how do you see that in kind of looking back? We also saw my uncle, my mother's brother, had a road traffic accident and his leg never really healed. And we always thought, you know, his behaviour was often very difficult and very eccentric. But I now always look back on that and think, I never knew him before he had that road traffic accident. And 
had a leg which really should have been amputated and never was and was, you know, in pain for the rest of his life. And um, I think that was worse for him because it was his fault. He ran across the road without looking. And so, you know, he knew it was his fault, but he lived with pain and and a traumatic event. Mm. And you, I mean, everybody that I meet, something traumatic has happened to them. And I always, you know, some clients are just amazingly hysterical or amazingly you know, patient and never complain about anything. But other clients obviously can are not necessarily easy to deal with, but you've always got to remind yourself that they've been through something that you haven't and mm. how would you deal with that and remind yourself that their behaviour is more likely than not an effect, uh, the result of what they've been through and, you know, why shouldn't they react like that? It's a natural reaction to find, to be very impatient that the claim's not moving on or wants, you know, want to know when they're getting more money and want things to happen faster. It's completely understandable. And it's mainly a result, in most cases, of, of what's happened to them, which is horrendous. And, you know, there's the biggest difference between people's lives, in one sense, is their health and whether they have to go through either serious illness that isn't anybody's fault or a serious accident that is someone's fault and the, the amount, the biggest sort of, almost the biggest discrimination is between those who can get money to help with their disabilities and those who can't. And worldwide between those who have terrible health problems and no healthcare system to support them mm. and those who have health problems that are no one's fault but can get good medical treatment in the NHS or wherever. Mm. And you just always have to bear in mind how what awful things happen to people and mm. see if there's any way you can support them in that. And I think that's quite similar in, in your job, Nikki, isn't it? Yeah, you guess. come across a lot of people who've been through terrible traumas and all you can do is try and make something better because the trauma's happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's very... I mean, to go back to your original question, Dex, about, uh, about the effect of trauma on... I mean, I think that the older I get, the more huge respect, admiration I have for our parents um, mm. and for my father who... Um, I never understood why he wouldn't talk about the trauma that, you know, um, as you know, um, our, our mother took us for a walk when we were 14. I was 14. Lizanne must have been 15, I guess, um, on the promenade in Brighton and told us that, that is, you know, your daddy is Jewish and German and you're never to speak to him about it. Um, and and I neither of you had any idea. No. I Absolutely no idea. We had a library full of German books and it had never twigged. A lot of people thought he had an accent, but I never recognised that he had one. I think the accent got more pronounced as he got older. I had absolutely no idea. I mean, looking back, it 
probably was quite traumatizing just to be told because yeah absolutely no idea I mean to be told that your father's not really what you think he is must be crazy like I can't imagine being I think the strange thing was that that what it did to the conversation because once there's an area like that you can't talk about so he wouldn't talk about anything that had happened to him prior to his marriage so you couldn't ask him about schooling or education or anything else of which it would have been and the more I discover now about his life um, and his family the more fascinating it it would have been I mean you're discovering afterwards that he was a full colonel in the British Army in the war, interrogated Nazi um, Nazi officers to find out how the Nazi mind ticked, to find out that he was a friend of Einstein's, um, you know, that he was moved in these circles in Germany, that, that, that his family started a massive bank that was stolen by the Nazis in the 1930s. It's all so fascinating. Um, and, to, you know, he, obviously, I think he must have known Bertrand Russell. He must have known all these people. Uh, I think he may even have known Bonhoeffer, but you know that the fact is that that it was all in that head of his, uh, mm. and he he. But I also now understand why he couldn't talk about it. It was mm. just too traumatic. Um, you know, when you look at the concentration camps in which his family died and how they died, it, how could you begin a conversation? Um, and a lot of these victims of um, the Nazis, um, are, you know, some of them lived to 100. And it was only when they got to about 98. Uh, and then, you know, it was 70 years after the events, 2015, that they were able to talk about it. Mm. So, you know, had he lived another 35 years, he might have been able to talk about it. But it was too soon. You know, it was mm-hmm. only, he got married only a few years after the war was ended. We were born, it was in 10 years, within 10 years of the end of the war. You know, he didn't have time to process it and to, um, and I just have just absolutely massive admiration for what he did. He came as a refugee, he sacrificed everything for us mm. um, and he did what he thought was right um, in our best interests to protect us partly um, and, um, I just, I, I just think they were com- both of our parents were complete heroes. Mm. But I mean, he in one way he was right because I can remember when I was told I was kind of worried about telling people I was German. Even then, it was like it was still, you know, there was still a very anti-German feeling even for German Jews in England in the even in the sixties when we were told. I think. Yeah. I think he, he understood that. And I think oh, my mother always said that he didn't even apply for silk because it was such a bias against German Jews. He couldn't have been a high court judge at that time because no no German Jews could be high yeah, would have been made high court judges. There was still there was a huge amount of prejudice and he didn't want us to be tarnished by that in in what we did. So. But do you think all of that has, you know, even if you haven't thought it when you've gone into the careers that you've gone into and you've kind of pursued them with kind of obviously different fields that you've gone into, that you started, both started, but you've gone into different fields, but it feels like even if you're not thinking it, you're doing things that are trying to 
make the world a kind of better, fairer, um, more kind of loving, just place. And whether they're kind of, that is because of the sort of parents that you had, because of knowing what your father had gone through, whether that kind of has actually been what's sort of been driving you in your careers. I think everybody wants to make the world a fairer, just, just a place. And I'm not sure any of us really do because we work in our own little tiny world, which is such a small segment of society, really. It's always, always a drop in the ocean. But I think anybody asked, do they want to make the, the world a fairer, juster place would say yes, wouldn't they? I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah, definitely. Could. But I would say that, that, yeah, obviously everything that people do is a drop in the ocean, but you two have probably made more of a splash than... <laughs> And a little drop. Well, that's more true of Nikki than it is. Oh, no, no. I would say that. You've you've done. You're, I mean, you're. I just look at what you've achieved with absolute massive admiration. But your this, reach uh, is worldwide and has been phenomenal. I mean, you know, the number I, of people who've heard of you compared to the number of people who've heard of me. And if you put Gumball into Google, I'm about. 45th down <laughs> all the things that you yeah it's phenomenal what you've done and what you've done for you know absolutely no economic reward whereas what I've done has been for economic reward and you can't really pretend otherwise that's, but that's one thing that you absolutely know you have not done it for the economic reward I mean there's no and Bex will testify to that that there's no way that I mean I know you would do it for free. You would do all the cases yeah. you do for free, wouldn't you? I mean that, that is true. Well, I do keep saying that um, if people make if I stop getting paid for what I do, I'll just do it for free instead. And people do tell me I shouldn't say that too loudly. So I'm not <laughs> saying it on a podcast um, <laughs> because people will stop paying me if I advertise that I do it for free otherwise. Well, that shows you're not doing it for economic reward. You're, oh, doing, yeah. it, you're doing it for, for, a, far, for a far greater yeah. purpose. No, it's obvious now, Eva, that there is, there's some sort of like deep drive in you both that not everyone has. Yeah, everyone, if they would like to be able to look back on their life and say they've done great things and made the world better for some people. But there is, you know, you have both not just like gone into these fields but you've also been like so driven at it that you like work all the time if you're not working you're exercising you know that's <laughs> just like kind of what you you do but there's there seems to be this like deep kind of passion and yeah it kind of not no one can stop you even if you were both told that you had to retire whatever age neither of you will retire do you feel like you two are similar <laughs> Or do you feel like you're very different? I think we're quite similar. Uh, <laughs> I like to think we're quite similar. Is actually what I mean. Yes. Well, I would love. I would love to have. Right. I always look at my sister and think, think, oh my goodness, she has got so much more energy and determination and drive than I have. Um, I'd like to have a little bit of it. So uh, I look with massive admiration. I mean, I, I want the drive to pass down a generation, but feel like well in 
yeah, I don't know if it has in my case. I think it has. Well, I think it's driven, in my case, certainly by insecurity for years and years. I mean, I'm becoming slightly more secure now, but for years and years I was really insecure in the sort of early years at the bar and with, you know, every... But that, I mean, it was... But it was because you had had so many disadvantages. Um, you, you were fighting against such a a hostile environment, really, to for for a woman to succeed. You had so and and part of that was the fact that I mean, the, it is bizarre that Daddy didn't think that you should be a barrister when he was married to a barrister. And it was like absolutely extraordinary. But then the fact that he he sorted everything out for me and then I, I left it all and went off and did something that he would have thoroughly disapproved of. So I, the insecurity was not internal, it was external. It was the result of all the things that you had to face in order to do what you've done, which is why I have just massive admiration but even by the time I got silk, I was really insecure and people noticed that about me. Oh, really? It was only the people I'd worked with after I got silk that gave me any sort of sense of, of security. Daddy came over here with nothing at all. I mean, he had literally, he came as a refugee with nothing. My mother didn't have um, any much um, money. We were... We all our clothes were secondhand. We went off to the greengrocer to get damaged fruit, um, yeah. but they but they sacrificed everything for us basically, um, and that was they they were absolutely extraordinary. Mm. And looking back at having been quite different from our contemporaries, in one of the things that made me feel really insecure was how old our parents were. Yeah. Now it's not unusual at all, but as yeah. a child, I was just terrified of them dying. And when my father went through the bathroom that was through my bedroom and collapsed on the floor and had a stroke, I was absolutely hysterical. And um, how old were you then? When was that? I was probably about eight. I mean, no, I didn't gosh. know about that. I think, or must have been a bit older, because I think you'd gone to boarding school by then, but he had a stroke, collapsed on the bathroom floor. I and, never knew about that. That's the first time I've heard about that. And later, when he had brain scans, they showed up that he had had a stroke, and it must have been that time when he collapsed on the bathroom floor. And we lived in a lodging house because tax rates were 19 and 6 in the pound. And the only way you could keep up a house was to set the rent you received against the expenses of the house. And that wasn't a job my mum would have chosen to do if she had a choice about it. But she did it in order that we could live in a nice house. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was a source of some insecurity. Yeah. 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 Which was absolutely no fault of theirs, but it just yeah. made you feel that you'd got, you know, you'd come through all that, and yeah, should, and made you feel even more grateful for what they did for us because they were doing it at an age when people would be expected to be doing less, and you know, Daddy had to work until he was well into his seventies because we were still at school. Yes. Mm. 
yeah. and actually you were both relatively young to have lost both your parents as well yes yeah I mean when people talk about their parents now I'm just sort of amazed because I haven't had parents for 40 years or whatever mm-hmm. 90, 30, 35 years yeah 35 years since and my uh, my uh, father died nearly 40 years ago mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you can't believe it when people say, oh, I'm look, going to look after my thing. What? Did you, um, you said, well, just back to when you said growing up, you felt different. Did you feel different just because they were older? Or do you think you also could tell that your dad was, was that part of, you know, once you knew that he was German and Jewish, did you, was that also part of feeling different? No, I don't remember being aware of that until, I mean, Nikki says he was 14. I think I must have been 16. Okay. So I don't remember that till much later. I remember worrying about whether I should tell boyfriends or not. So I must have been in my mm. in my teens. No, it was more that they saved up like crazy to send us to private schools. But we came from a lodging house that we were embarrassed to ask people back to and always had secondhand clothes, as as Nikki remembers. And I remember the first clothes that I ever had that were bought in a shop were clothes my godmother sent me from Marks and Spencer's. And my mother knew that with Marks and Spencer's clothes, you could take them back and get the money back. So she took them back and got the money back. So I didn't even get to keep those. And the first clothes that I had bought in a shop and cho- you know, chose for myself were when I started working in a jeweler's shop in Sloan Street and got paid, I don't know, fifteen pounds a week to work in this shop. And that's when I bought my first clothes that weren't secondhand. Well, the only other clothes that weren't secondhand were discontinued. The only clothes that weren't secondhand were discontinued school uniforms. Harrods would sell off school uniforms that were no longer the uniform of whatever school it was. So I would wear other people's school uniform as my <laughs> home clothes. And those were the, it was the choice between other people's school uniform that was new or secondhand clothes from Oxfam and this damaged fruit. I remember these big boxes. But then when I lived in Paris, what did I do? I went to the greengrocer uh, at the end of the road and asked for damaged fruit. And I got a box of damaged fruit every week from the greengrocer in Paris because that's what I'd been brought up with. And I thought it was, you know, great way of living on a tiny budget in Paris was to get the, the damaged fruit from the greengrocer at the end of the road. So it was much more those sort of things that because everybody else who went to the schools that we went to, and Nikki probably felt that even more with going to Eton, seemed to have a completely different lifestyle. They had younger parents, richer parents, lived in, you know, not huge whole houses in Knightsbridge, but smart flats that didn't have other people living in them and wore, you know, clothes that they chose. It was particularly stark at St Paul's because you could wear your own clothes. So I would turn up in you know, other, other people's school uniforms. <laughs> That's not going to build much for your confidence, is it? Which seemed really silly now, but at the time they, you know, they didn't buy confidence in a child. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that I you know I had secondhand ill-fitting clothes. Um, I mean, and Eaton that was like, uh, and then I I can you know still etched in my mind is everyone arriving, all the parents arriving in their smart cars, and um, my parents arriving on a coach, um, which literally was the laughing stock. Um, yeah, I mean it, they you know they did absolutely what they could in the sense that you know they wouldn't have got a car for themselves that was more expensive. But I don't think they had any idea what effect it had on, on us as children. But it, you know, it really doesn't matter now. But yeah. at the time, I think it did. It, I think it's sort of part of what's made us both quite driven is, mm. you know, none of those things matter. We can still get on as well as our contemporaries. The other thing that I wanted to ask you both is that, you know, we've talked about a lot of these sort of quite traumatic things. And I feel like a lot of people thing of like you can't would say like how can you believe in a god when the awful things have happened and you've both talked about some of when we've covered some of the most awful things that you can think of happening whether it's the holocaust or sexual abuse or defects at birth or disability and how that's how what you would both say you know people say how how can you then believe in a god when you've seen such awful things happening whether that's um, made you feel that or made you feel the opposite, how that sort of affected faith? But you just have to remember that God hasn't caused these problems, but you can look to God to try and find solutions, that you know, mm. humans cause the problems and all you can do is hope that if you believe in a loving God that he can help you and the people affected to find, you know, some better life despite the problems. But you can't blame God for people having awful things happen to them because God doesn't cause people to injure each other, but he does help to people to move on from terrible conditions. I mean, that's how I look at it. I don't, how would you look at it, Nikki? You know, I think the hardest, the, the, the biggest moral objection to faith is the amount of suffering in the world and the pervasiveness of it. You know, I think the Holocaust and, um, you know, the transatlantic slave trade and all these, these horrors of human history, um, are the biggest moral objection to faith. Um, and I think it, it, it's, uh, you know, for me, it's the fact that, that um, the God who's revealed in Jesus is not aloof from suffering. It like, it's not like God is sitting in heaven saying, oh, you know, bad luck. Um, he came in the person of Jesus and suffered for us and with and suffers with us uh, is is the strongest um, reason why I'm I'm able to believe in God in spite of all the suffering in the world, um, which is huge. Um, and you can you know you can rationalise it as being as a result of human sin or that God can put it all right or that we learn through it, but ultimately, for me, it's the fact that. Um, Jesus has revealed what God is like 
and God is a God who suffers and understands about suffering and suffers with us um, and ultimately came to do something about it so that suffering was def- the resurrection shows that suffering will come to an end and that that uh, in the end good overcomes evil um, and that is that is the hope for our world but it was other people who were instrumental in Christ being on the cross because there are always there have always been people who will impose evil on other people mm. yeah because that's human choice mm. yeah yeah lovely to see thank you, you so much thank you so much God bless Thank you for listening to this podcast conversations on faith and equality we hope that you've enjoyed it please tell your friends about it like subscribe and hopefully there'll be more coming soon bye